The goal in your life lies just beyond where you're afraid or unwilling to go. We have to step into that fear willingly and knowingly and be willing to accept the consequence of things that we believe in and are important to us to get the goal that waits on us. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Tom Richardson, and I'm joined, as almost always, with my co-host, Joe Fabrito. Joe, welcome. Let's talk about cold plunges and... Yeah, there's so much to talk about in the middle of this winter. I mean, we're recording the show the day before... The, the wild card weekend of the NFL and one of the one of the big topics in the in the world of sports particularly football is this big game coming up in Buffalo this weekend where the temperatures are frigid and I and I for one love those kinds of games as mm. a fan and it actually relates to our guests today uh, but Joe before we introduce Aaron let's uh, let me just ask you um, any interesting takes from the week since we last well, talked about what's going on in the biz? Well, we don't know by the time this comes out whether Novak Djokovic will be playing or not playing. Yeah. I call him, I I call him Novak's Djokovic, yeah, Novak by the way. Djokovic. Oh, good. Um, I didn't think of that, by the way, but I, I love that yeah. nickname. Um, I started to learn about DAOs today, which I thought was interesting. I had no yeah, idea what it was until last night, thanks to our, our colleague. Chris DAOs, Chesney, you mean Digital today. Autonomous Organization? Digital I mean, or and, diversified, I think. Not and how one of them may be coming to sports pretty soon from our colleague, Chris Lincheski. But um, that's for another show, for sure. Um, the one thing I wanted to point out is, is, Tom, I know you saw this. I asked 40 people about who they follow. Yeah, including and, me. I was one of the ones. Including yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Including yourself. Um, and I got back about 200 answers. And this was over the course of three weeks. And I posted it the Monday after the new year. And there were two amazing things. One is there were only eight people who were on more than one person's list, which really surprised me. Mm -hmm. The other thing that surprised me was when I just on Twitter without promoting it at all, uh, I looked a week later and it had 1.4 million views. And I have no idea how that happened, but it was such an interesting exercise because people really talked about not the normal names. And that was the beauty of it is I would say out of the 280 of them, I'd never heard of. And, and one of them we mentioned with our guest a little while ago is a guy named Wim Hof who does cold plunges. And our guest was actually on the list because he was nominated by uh, another colleague of ours, um, actually two colleagues of ours uh, who happened to mention his name, one put him on the list. So anyway, but it was just an interesting exercise, which I've also gotten back, I would say 20 or 30 other names that I hadn't thought of in addition. And so somewhere down the line, we'll do another one, but it was, well, no, I think that's great joke. Really I think, you know, it's one yeah. reason why one of the fun parts of doing the show over the last six years is asking that simple question. How do you stay smart? Who are you listening to? Yeah. Who are you following? Who, who are you paying attention to? Because yeah. we all have different perspectives and it's really interesting to hear other mm -hmm. smart people's like when I, you know, I, you know, I follow music really closely. And one of the things I always check is for the musicians that I really love, who do you listen to? Who do you admire? Who do you respect? And I, and then that leads me down another path and sometimes, and it's great. But anyway, let's introduce our guests. We're really fortunate. Yeah, yeah. one more thing. One other thing. I yeah. finished, I watched all of Ted Lasso. Oh. Amazing, <laughs> okay. amazing. I would say, as I said to um, our friend Jeff Eisenband yesterday, it is almost as well-written as anything Aaron Sorkin does. And that's the amazing, and I, I, I have now on a, in a passion 
and a quest to get Brett Goldstein on our show at some point because um, be he is, we have yeah. a mutual friend and he, um, you know, for the people who have, have not seen the show, his character is just beyond the charts and he wrote the sh most of right. the shows, which was amazing. So anyway. Right. Well, Joe, I mean, he has such an intense look. I think we could get just like an image of his face, put mm -hmm. it in the Zoom box mm -hmm. and then play like his greatest hits, the clips from the show because he's mm -hmm. had, had so many great one-liners in that show. Roy Kent, we love Roy Kent. Roy Kent. No, good stuff. Anyway, um, mm -hmm. we're really thrilled to be joined today by someone with an incredible resume in the world of sports, former athlete, current broadcaster, speaker, motivational guy. Um, but it's very rare, Joe, that we're joined by an actual Super Bowl champion Yes. who was not only successful in the NFL, but he was also an All-American in college, in this case at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. We're talking about Aaron Taylor. And let me just run down a couple of things about his resume that's so impressive. So at Notre Dame, he was a two-time All-American. He was drafted in the first round, very impressive, by my favorite NFL team, the Green Bay Packers. Played for a few years on the frozen tundra, and while there, won a Super Bowl. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Then went on to San Diego. Um, spent a few years in San Diego, then left the league and got into the next phase of his career, which was, it sounds like, and we'll hear more about this broadcasting and sportscasting and stuff like that. Um, and has done really interesting things along the way. And he's become a well-known guy in the world of college football, especially. Um, so we're going to talk to Aaron about all this. Um, Joe, if you'd like to start with the first question I made about six or seven, I have about six or seven, I can't wait to get into, including stuff about Wim Hof, uh, which, which is kind of a late add to the list. But would you like to start off the show? Welcome, Aaron. Pleasure to have you. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. And and, and the one thing um, which uh, Aaron, um, Tom talked a little about your public speaking is kind of the paths that you've gone down and the, the obstacles on and off the field that you've overcome, which now you go out and talk to people about. Um, but let's start with the immediate, which is how do you create a college football award and how did you come up with really how we met a little over a month ago with the Joe Moore Award and, and the genesis of that? So why don't you kind of take us from the Joe Moore Award and then kind of double back to your, you know, your, your give us a quick summary of your career and how you got to where you are. Good and bad. Right. I'll start with the summary first. I was pretty awesome. Okay. So we got that established. Nice. Uh, Any question? Right. Let's establish that from the get-go. <laughs> uh, at Notre Dame, I had the pleasure of being coached by a guy by the name of Joe Moore. And Joe Moore was simply the best offensive line coach that the game of college football has ever seen. Coached 18 years, most notably at Notre Dame and at Pittsburgh. And in that time, he sent 52 players to the NFL. That's almost three per year if you do the math. It's unprecedented. It'll never happen again. And while at Notre Dame, which is where I had the pleasure of coaching under, or playing underneath him, he never had a senior starter that at least didn't get invited to camp and have a cup of coffee in the NFL over nine years. He was masterful at getting us to be the best versions of ourselves. But beyond that and beyond the X's and O's and the fundamentals, it was the development of the belief in us that really, I think, separated things out. And it's really interesting as I went back and started to ask people about Joe and what they remember, and we had to come up with the award criteria and all those sort of things. The one word that really started to stick out was belief. And what I, what I realized now that I didn't know at the time is that at first, Joe believed in us. 
And then through a lot of repetition and fundamentals, we eventually believed in his belief. But then finally, we believed in ourselves. And once that happened, that's when the defenses had problems. And that's how he created NFL and College Football Hall of Famers is by this relentless adherence to developing belief by doing the simple and the mundane over and over and over. We never walked to the line of scrimmage and ever doubted what the outcome was going to be because we had repped it, we had prepared for it, and we believed in our preparation. And that's why we rolled folks. So what's interesting is that Joe was a high school football coach at Upper St. Clair in, in Pennsylvania. And while there, he had a young uh, linebacker that played for him by the name of Kirk Ferentz, who now is obviously the longest tenured college football coach at the University of Iowa. And Kirk had tried to start an award maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I guess, in Joe's honor. And it fell short. And I now know why, because it's a crazy amount of work. But I had always been in the offseason speaking and talking about Joe. And there's a great story that I get emotional every time I tell. But there was this football camp that was in Pittsburgh, which is hard to get to from San Diego. And I was always making excuses about why I couldn't go. So I finally threw the flag on myself and I called his son, James, and said, James, I'm there no matter what. That phone call took place on June 7th of 2015. And I said, man, didn't you tell me a time when Kirk said that he wanted to create a college football award in your dad's honor? He said, yeah. And he told me a little bit about it and it just never materialized. I said, was it an O-line coach of the year award? What was it? And he's like, yeah, I, I don't kind of remember. Nothing ever really materialized. So I said, man, I, I got some energy around doing that. that. That'd be cool to do something to not only memorialize who he is, but more about what he stood for and the principles of toughness and teamwork and what's possible when we all come together for the greater good. Like that's what's resonating with me. He said, yeah, man, think about it. So I went online, I looked up, and went to ESPN site, and there were 26 individual awards for college football. Every single one in the consummate team sport celebrated the individual. And that's when the light bulb went off for us. Football is the consummate team game. And within that game, our position, the offensive line, is where five have to function as one. If we do our job, everybody wins. But if one of us breaks down, the entire team plays the price. So that was the genesis of it when the light bulb went off. So that was June 7, 2015. By December 20th of that same season, we had created an award, we had shot artwork, we had designed a logo, we had talked to a foundry and a, a world-renowned award-winning sculpturist and Jerry McKenna. It had a pedestal and a base designed. I had put together a committee. I had formed the criteria, which was basically an email to 800 plus years of coaching and playing experience. And I asked them, give me the three best characteristics of the offensive lines that you saw over your career that were the best, that you played on, watched, heard about, studied, whatever. And it came back as this word cloud. And we kind of distilled that word cloud down to the six criteria that we have now, which is toughness, effort, teamwork, consistency, uh, technique, and finishing. All of that took place between June 7th, 2015 and December 20th, when we rolled the inaugural Joe Moore Award into the meeting room of the University of Alabama when they won the inaugural award when they had Derrick Henry. And we were off and running from that standpoint. So it sounds pretty simple and what took place, but I think what's really notable and interesting is how fortuitous that process unfolded for us. 
at every single step, we had the right person at the right time or the right resource in the right amount in the right way. It was effortless from that standpoint. And I firmly believe that divine ideas are harmonious. And that's just one of many I've been lucky enough to be a part of in my life. Wow. That's amazing. Congrats on doing that. Really Thank impressive. You. Um, if you don't mind, can we just go back in time a little bit to your playing days? I can't yeah. help but ask a question or two as an NFL fan. That's way back in time. time. I know, <laughs> but um, what was it like playing in Green Bay? I mean, there's such a, a vaunted franchise in the world of sports. The name, the logo, the uniforms, the location, the history. That must have been really exciting to get drafted by them. Were you happy to be drafted as a Notre Dame guy going up to Wisconsin? No, I was pretty drunk and disappointed, actually, to be candidly honest. I mean, I'm not kidding. Okay. I, I was supposed to be the fifth or sixth player taken overall to either Tampa or the Rams. Tampa or the Rams. Tampa or the Rams. I talked to their staffs. I had, you know, I had all these meetings. They flew me out. They had secondary medical deals. And I remember sitting in my living room, and when, you know, the, the picks are 15 minutes apart, so me going five or six, that means the first hour and 15 minutes, hour and a half, period of the draft, I'm off the board. Well, when that window came and went, I was like, uh-oh, and the anxiety kicked in and the Heineken started flowing because I was a sophisticated drinker back in my drinking days. Heineken, the stinky beer, I love it. Really? You're about uh, to get a big contract, that's why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and Ron Wolf called and said, hey, this is Ron Wolf from the Green Bay Packers. We're gonna take you here with the 16th pick. And I was like, awesome, that's great. <laughs> Super happy and excited about that. Damn. Right? Like these warm weather climates or, you know, in the middle of nowhere in this small town that I'd only been and driven through once because Jim Flanagan, a teammate of mine in my class in Notre Dame, was from Door County. So we had to drive up through Green Bay to get to his house one Easter. And it was this small podunk town of 100,000 people. So not really excited about the prospects of going there out of the gate and to make matters worse I ruptured my right patella tendon right out of the gate in June I think it was June 6th of, of that year that I got drafted 1994 and it started out with a big flop what I didn't know then that I know now is that that was the best possible thing that could have ever happened to me, that I was at the right place at the right time with the right mm -hmm. folks and me and my personality and we can get into my use and abuse of all mind altering substances and how that got in the way. It really was almost like a set of bumpers to be in Green Bay because there was only so much trouble and bad decision making that I could do. But beyond that, we had Reggie White in the locker room. Beyond that, I got to be on the field and block for two of Brett Favre's three MVP seasons. I had a front row seat to practice against and to play in front of two of the greatest players to ever play this game. And when I look back, what I appreciate so much about my career is how much history is involved in it. I played at De La Salle High School in the Bay Area. Yep. Recently set the all-time winning streak with 151 games, 13 years without a loss. That was a championship culture. I wasn't part of that. That started a year or two after I left and went to Notre Dame, but that was the cloth that I was cut from. I didn't go to Notre Dame, one of the most iconic storied history, rich programs in college football played for Lou Holtz. It was year one of the NBC contract deal where those things are now ubiquitous, but that was unprecedented back then. 
I lost seven games in four years at Notre Dame. I win the Lombardi trophy, which goes to the college lineman that uh, the best college interior offensive lineman. I then get drafted to a place that's the stadium's named after Lombardi. And then I get a chance to win the Lombardi trophy, winning the Super Bowl in 1996 against the, the New England Patriots. So the football gods, man, have shined brightly upon me my entire career. And I've just been lucky once again to be at the right place at the right time with the right folks to get the best of the best of what this sport has to offer. Well, one more quick one. I got to ask, what was it like playing with Favre? What's Favre like? Uh, he stinks. Um, he had gotten into a car accident at some point. What a lot of people don't know is that he had a hernia. So they had to put some mesh into his stomach at some point to repair the hernia from the car accident. Unfortunately, one of the side effects of that is horrendous gas. So he would blow our <laughs> meetings up. <laughs> When we would meet as a team and then we go to the offense and then finally we couldn't wait to break out and go to the old line room. Like we're the ones that take the bad rap for being the stinky pigs when it was really far. But I got to tell you, man, I never played with a guy that was as tough as him on any level at any position. Yeah. I watched him walk into the stadium on crutches. When he had a banged up leg, throw three touchdowns against Cincinnati and one of the best touchdown passes I've ever seen that covered 35 yards with pressure in his face off his back foot with a bracketed receiver, you know, with DBs two yards on either side. There's no way he should have made that throw, but the arm strength allowed him to do it. He walked into the stadium on crutches, threw three touchdowns, walked out of the stadium on crutches, and there's not a better teammate or a tougher competitor than I've ever played with in number four. Aaron, does he still hold the record for most consecutive starts for a QB? I'm not had sure that for a long time, right? Head. It, it has to be up there. There's some others that, you know, have had some. I think good... maybe, or Joe, did maybe Eli pass him? It was kind of a, maybe. anyway, I always was so amazed by that, knowing how violent football is and how many injuries, mm -hmm. you know, you, your injuries are ubiquitous. And to, to think what he did as a quarterback, especially one who scrambled a fair amount and like had that kind of, that style, that Favre style that was so legendary. Mm -hmm. The fact that he was able to start, I, th I think it was well over you know, 200 games or more in a row. Yeah. It's crazy to think about. Yeah, yeah. That, that game against Cincinnati is one that the streak could have easily been broken with probably 99.9% .9 of other players. They would have taken that game off. It wasn't a conference game. It was, you know, a, a crossover game. Like there were a lot of reasons why he could maybe get himself healthy, but that wasn't who he was. And, and football cliches are cliches because they're true. And one of those is that the best ability is durability. And Favre mm. had that in spades. That's a good line. Yeah. So, um, Aaron, you touched a little bit on kind of the, the dark path. And, and it's a lot of what you talk about now and the resilience of even in the brightest of lights, how, you know, there are issues that people need to deal with and overcome. Take us through that, that if you wouldn't mind, take us through the the other side of, of fame and and what you now go and talk about and how you've been able to overcome uh, and really preach now to, to kind of the life balance, especially with mental health being such an issue these days. Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Joe. And, and to be clear, the only thing I'm an expert in is my own experience. And that experience mm -hmm. includes a lot of adversity and self-inflicted wounds uh, along the way. Uh, single child, uh, only child, one parent household, parents divorced it to uh, dad was supposed to show up at 
eight years old to, to take me to some amusement park and never showed up. That was a day that changed the rest of my life because mm -hmm. I internalized that. And from that point forward, and I carry that on, I'm 49 year olds today and it's still present, although it's much, much less intense than it used to be, was this notion that there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't worth loving because had I been, my daddy would have shown up at that day, right? So we all have our mom and dad and origin stories that take place. But along that lines, we moved every two years. So I was always a new kid in school. I was biracial, so I wasn't white enough. I wasn't black enough. I was too white. I was too black. I, the anguish of the in-between is what I call that period of my life. There was some sexual abuse that happened from an adult male uh, family member uh, during that time that added to the, the fun mix of stuff that I was dealing with. But football was really the thing that gave me an opportunity to channel my energy. I was 13 years old and was a DNF student getting kicked out of school because all I wanted to do was to fit in and to be a part of. So the lowest common denominator of hanging out with folks was if I could have a fake ID or go into the store and be able to steal some, some weed or wine or drink or whatever it was. So making a lot of bad decisions pretty quickly, but football really was the thing that allowed me to channel my energy. And when I started hanging around people that elevated me, I responded. And that's really kind of when my God-given ability took over. Like I was born with this physiology that was designed and made for football. So everybody worked hard, including myself. But when I worked hard, I got way better than they did. And that was the natural piece. I didn't earn that. I didn't deserve that. I was born with it. And I just took advantage of it. So that led to going to Notre Dame. And I remember keeping a journal back at Notre Dame about needing to keep an eye on my drinking. Like, you know, if I had an X on the calendar for every day that I had alcohol in my system, there'd be a lot of X's, but my grades are still good. I'm still playing good. And like, looking back, I'm like, what more did I need to know about having a problem than the fact that I was journaling in college? Like that should have been a <laughs> red flag to be uh, 19, right. 20 having these thoughtful exposés yeah, really. about Foot, football players aren't supposed to be like that. <laughs> no doubt. So I, I was, things were great and I was being successful almost despite my best efforts to sabotage that. And when I got drafted to Green Bay, I talked about, I wasn't initially happy, really happy to be in the NFL and living out my dream, but that particular franchise, I didn't fully appreciate until, you know, well after, but when I got hurt that first mini camp in June, my world stopped. Every workout, every lift, every winter conditioning, every spring ball, every camp, every dream and visualization and poster on my wall from a kid pointed to me living out my dream to be in the NFL and boom, in an instant, it was over. And I had never missed a down in college talking about durability. And in the NFL, I made it six practices in shorts. I didn't have put on shoulder pads yet. I didn't even have a mouthpiece in and I ruptured my right patella tendon and that year is over. So what people don't understand is that football, the train keeps moving. So they moved, my world stopped, their world moved 10 yards down the field because they moved the drill. Making matters worse is that they invited Guy McIntyre. They signed him mm -hmm. off the street to come in with the big neck roll, the longtime 49er. Well, as I mentioned, I grew up in the Bay Area. So Guy McIntyre was a player that I watched and admired growing up. And they brought his old ass in to take my spot. It was as dark and sad and depressed of a place as I had ever been in my life. 
And I did what any self-respecting, you know, high-performing athlete would do. And that was drink myself into oblivion. So my abuse of alcohol became a crutch to be able to deal with the pressure and the disappointment of playing sports at that highest level, but also come from a family of alcoholics. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. I have two sons. They probably got the gene. But what's more important than what I went through is what I did about it. And after I retired, I crashed and burned like a lot of folks do. Walked into my first room of recovery almost two years to the day of retiring. And I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And the lowest common denominator of all the jacked up stuff in my life was me. I was there every single time. There was one person that was there and it was me. And that was hard for me to admit that I had a problem, that I was powerless and that my life was unmanageable because that was so contrary to the success that I had as an athlete. And I think that's why a lot of us struggle to turn things over because we are asked and forced, invited to put down the very tools that allow us to be successful as athletes. And we're really reluctant and resistant to do that in other areas of our life, even if it deals with our health and our mental health. Wow. And then, you know, the, the one question I had, which I thought was interesting is, and, and you could touch on this as an athlete, your career came to an end and you had to start another career, which we should touch on that now, your broadcasting and the other things that you're doing. Um, at an age when I would imagine most of your Notre Dame classmates were deep into their first career and, and had a path. How hard was it to restart a path after, you know, everything that you've done to get to that point was, was basically over? And then what did you do at that point? It was excruciatingly difficult because I didn't know what I didn't know. I call it the elusive sweet spot, right? I was lucky enough to be in a, a profession where I was really good at something that I really enjoyed that I got compensated extremely well for, right? Most people are really good at something and get paid for it and that's work and that's the quadrant that they live in. I was in the sweet spot of doing something I loved. I was really good at it and I enjoyed it and I got paid extremely well and boom, in an instant it ended. So at that point, athletes are forced to answer a question at a really early age oftentimes of who am I without this thing that I've done my entire life? We yeah. have this identity crisis. So it took me a while to figure that out, but I basically was able to identify five things that football gave me that I missed when it was gone. The one was income. That's obvious, right? How I receive value for the value that I bring. Two was identity, how I'm known to the world, but also, and I don't think I appreciated this, how I'm known to myself. I hadn't experienced who I was as an individual outside of football in two decades. The third, and this is ones that I think are buried a little bit under the surface, is purpose. Why I feel I'm put on this earth. Significance is the fourth. How I know I make a difference. 80 times of practice, 80 times a game. Good job, good block, good read, good adjustment, good recovery, good boy. That tapped into my need to be accepted and validated from older men, which is maybe getting a little too granular, but very much tied into why football was so important to me. And the fifth was community, right? So identity, income, purpose, significance, and community were five extremely important things that football gave me that I had to find a way to replace when I was done. And I didn't appreciate just how hard that was. So what I've done now, and to your point, is I basically Frankenstein that together, Joe. The income and identity I get as a college football analyst for CBS Sports. Hey, aren't you the guy that called this game or made that terrible call or you sound like dog crap, blah, 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 whatever Twitter wants to say. The income identity I get 
that piece. And that kind of suffices for what I really enjoyed about playing the sport of football on the field. But the purpose, significance, and community piece is what we're doing now, talking about things that matter. It's why I volunteer and do all the philanthropic stuff I do behind the scenes. It's why later on tomorrow afternoon, I've got a couple of sponsees coming over and we're going to go over the steps so that we can help each other stay sober. It's almost been two decades for me. Those are the things that I get the purpose, significance, and community. And the combination of kind of Frankensteining and bolting all those together have ended up being a life that is infinitely better and more rewarding and filled with more joy than any time I ever put on a pair of shoulder pads and a helmet. Wow. Outstanding. Aaron, knowing, um, keeping all that in mind, like your experience of the transition from an elite um, college football experience at Notre Dame, obviously the, the top of the heap for professional sports, the NFL for what, six years or so, and the challenges along the way, going back to these issues that you just brought up, we now have a situation in college sports because of name and image likeness, NIL, that seems to be a, a new variable in that formula for, for both mental health. I mean, many of the things you basically just covered, what do you think of NIL, um, both as a former college athlete and someone who now speaks in, about uh, these motivational topics and, and these self, uh, self-improvement issues? It's, uh, it scares me to death. And it scared me to death when they proposed it. And everybody was talking about pay for play, pay for play. And I always thought that that viewpoint was limited because it wasn't about pay for play. The issue at stake was compensation. We've always been compensated for what we've done on the field. And that compensation looked like room, board, tuition, fees, and those sort of things. When you add the outside element of name, image, and likeness, where you can financially benefit from those things, it, it's letting the, the, the tiger out of the cage. And we're seeing it already. From a philosophical standpoint, I'm all about people earning as much money however they can legally and being able to take advantage of their, their talents. But the reality is a lot of these guys come from families or home situations or personally don't know how to manage these things. And it's the management of that, in addition to all the other pressures that they have to play their sport at the highest level, where it's bas- basically professionalized anyway, it adds a lot to the plate. And it's really interesting when you start to go down the line, <coughs> excuse me, It's really interesting when you start to go down the line and look at the players last year that got the big NIL deals and how they performed on the field. There's a direct relationship seemingly between the bigger the NIL deal and the worse the performance. And I have to wonder and suspect if those weren't at least causal, at the very least a correlated dynamic between those two and the players that either donated that for charity or used it as a tool and a vehicle to do other things for other people, seemingly at first blush, performed better. So what we're watching now is complete free agency in college football. And pardon my French, but it's an absolute shit show. It used to be underneath the table, a school would sign a player, a donor would make an anonymous $250,000 donation to the church. The church would take its cut. The church would then hire the mother or the uncle or the father of the player. And that would be the pass through to launder the money. 
Well, now that it's above the table, there are basically funds of donors and alumni that have these pools of money that are getting players to go from school A to school B with no oversight. And because we also have the transfer portal, because we also, in addition, have the immediate eligibility where you don't have to sit out a year, we could be in a situation where players could spend one year at one school, go to another school. Like you try to follow what's taken place just in the SEC this year in the postseason, the transfer portal, our minds are going to explode. It, it's bananas how much crossover and particularly at the quarterback position that we're seeing secondary to name, image, and likeness. So I want to be clear. It's not name, image, and likeness's fault that this is taking place. It's the abuse of this new avenue that's been created. So there needs to be some sort of oversight. And that's where college football could use a czar in a lot of specific situations because we're going to continue to have the terrible system of the haves and the have-nots, and it's going to make our game worse eventually. And I'm scared when I think about long-term what that could look like. So having some sort of oversight and making some sort of legislative changes to at least put parameters on it to control it, I think is warranted, and I hope that that happens immediately. Quick follow-up. Can you give a definition of transfer portal? It's a phrase that all of us have been hearing the last few months, seemingly every day. And I'm not even sure exactly what it means. The transfer portal is a hypothetical electronic uh, platform where a player can raise his hand and say, hey, I'm single and ready to mingle. That doesn't mean necessarily <laughs> that he's left his school. But what oftentimes happens is when you enter the portal, your, your scholarship is rescinded. And so you can't it, go back. What's that? And you can't go back. And you can't go back. So what happens is players enter the portal because the grass is always greener. They don't like their coach. They're getting a raw deal. They should be starting. So they enter the portal and another school can sign them. This is putting tremendous pressure on the coaches from a roster management standpoint, because instead of knowing you have to save 25 scholarships for now, the early signing period and the late signing period, there's the average is about six scholarships they hold back because they're unsure of who they're going to have to sign because they don't know who's going to leave and who, who who's going to come free that can make them instantly better. And you take a look at Michigan State last year that had 40 people that left, 27 that came back in. They went from being a team that did not have a running back that scored a touchdown in 2020 to leading the damn country almost in rushing with Kenneth Walker, who was the transfer from Wake Forest. And it was an immediate rebuild. And when you have those rosters that are going to turn over like that, when you have coaches that are now getting paid and overpaid to go to new schools who now can look at their quarterback and say, hey, follow me out to Southern California. Follow mm -hmm. me over to East Lansing. You're going to have a complete chaotic, completely chaotic situation on your hands. And that's already taking place in this loyalty and being a part of the team and not a four-year commitment. It's a 40-year commitment all of the things that make the fabric of intercollegiate athletics special are now quickly giving way to the professionalization of college sports. So, so touch on, um, we, I know we have limited time left, but just touch on that a little bit more from a mental health standpoint. When you've been around players this year, do you see even, and, and that's not even factoring COVID in, but have you seen because of that, or do you at least see from a distance, more pressure and more mental strain being put on athletes now when this was supposed to actually to try and relieve it in some ways? 
No question, Joe. I, I think the broader picture here is that we're in the single greatest period of uncertainty that our country has seen in centuries. But you magnify that worldwide when you extend it to COVID. Like nothing is stable. So when you add further instability into collegiate athletics with the transfer portal, with everybody switching, with all of these new factors, it takes this one sanctuary, this one consistent thing that I can count on, that I can rely on, that encouraged Brett Favre days after his father died to go out on Monday night football and have that great game he had against the Raiders. Like our nookie, the thing that we can count on the most is now starting to become unstable as well. Young people are struggling. And the greater the responsibility, the greater the struggle, in my opinion. And we're watching parallel pandemics take place one on the physical health side, the other on the mental health side. And if we don't address the pandemic there, and college football is well aware of it, I've spoken with many athletic directors and conference commissioners about this, they're under-resourced. There's multiple schools out here on the West Coast that saw a year-over-year 500% increase in mental health practitioner requests on campus with a waiting list of three to four months before you can get your first appointment. People are dying inside and struggling in silence. And we have been very slow to react, I think nationally and certainly intercollegiate athletically to respond to that. Things are getting better. The response is taking place. But if we don't ramp things up quickly in two, three, four years down the line, we're going to have a much bigger problem on our hands than the coronavirus. Aaron, I know this could be probably a really long answer, but if you could just in brief, Give us an idea of how you think this might be remedied. If you were anointed czar of college sports, what steps would you take? Again, you can give, I, I, I know you probably have a lot of thoughts on this, but if you want to give a brief answer, that might be interesting to hear. Tom, that was the most polite way somebody's ever told me to hurry the hell up. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think we need to approach, for the, let me step back. Mental health is health. We're a closed system. Everything affects everything else. We used to think that heart health was diet and exercise. It's diet, exercise, and sleep. And now we have this big you know, awareness about what sleep apnea does and Reggie White passing away and those sort of things. It's all interrelated. So because of that, I talk to kids about performance enhancement. The better you are from a mental health standpoint, the better you're going to play. That's the currency they value. So we put all this money and all these resources into our environments, into new fancy buildings, into our new staffs, we have to resource the mental health portion of performance the way that we do with strength and conditioning. And the most important coach, aside from the head coach of any program, at least in football, is the strength and conditioning coach. For me, it was Jerry Schmidt, who then went to Florida and won a national championship, then went to Oklahoma and won a national championship when he was on that staff, because we see and we touch them the most. I learned how to be a leader and I learned how to work in winter conditioning and in spring conditioning and over the summer, the coaches expected them to do their job. So I showed up ready to play. They didn't have time to do that because we had to learn X's and O's. So the strength and conditioning hire is the second most important hire for any staff. We need to make the mental health practitioner that oversees that aspect be at least on par with the strength and conditioning coach. And that takes a systematic approach to do that. It takes linear alignment from top to bottom. And most importantly, it takes resources. And if we don't approach that, we're gonna unfortunately start to lose more of these young student athletes than we already have. 
Hey, um, Aaron, we ask um, all our guests two questions and you touch on so many different areas of your career. How do you stay up to date with everything that's going on, whether it's, you know, the obvious part of staying up with, with college football, but all the nuances there, all your speaking stuff, all the other things you're involved with. And then you gave us a lot of advice, uh, which I think reaches so many different people. But on the career side, uh, we have so many people who listen to this who are transitioning from careers, just starting out in careers. What it, what's the best advice you've ever gotten from a business perspective? And, and what's the, the advice that you like to share? So how do you stay up to date? And what's the business of the advice that you usually give out? Well, I stay up to date by reading the uh, sports marketing and PR roundup that you can find. It's good. <laughs> the cusp. I mean, let's start right. there. Those are wow. the you're right. our favorite. You're our favorite guests of 2022 so far. 2022, exactly. They <laughs> <laughs> questions, Joe. Jeez, um, man, I, I keep my ear to the pavement um, and, and look at probably a lot of the news sources that a lot of people do, but I also look at some alternative news sources. Coach Holtz had a great saying, you know, that things are never as good as they seem. Things are never as bad as they seem. Somewhere in the middle falls reality. So if you lose, yeah, it feels awful, but it's probably not as bad as you think. And if you won and we're lucky to win, it's probably you're not probably as good as you think you might be. But I think by extension, you could lend that to what's taking place in the news cycle. If you watch, you know, the cable news channels, you're going to get information all the way to one side, you're going to get all information all the way to the other. And somewhere in the middle is probably reality. So I tend to live on the fringes in the extremes to, to get as, as varied opinions as I can about any subject matter, take all that, put it on the table, put it into the algorithm in my brain, and then kind of spit out what I suspect is the truth. Um, or, you know, the, the, yeah, the truth. So from that standpoint, I don't know if there's anybody that I listen to or what I follow that would be helpful there, uh, aside from my wife. That's how you can definitely get smarter is listen to your wife and say, yes, dear. I don't do that very well. Instead, I say things like, wouldn't it be easier if, have you ever thought about, and why do you always? Those three <laughs> starters are not good for my own mental health. Um, in terms of advice for young people, man. Like if there's one phrase I could tell my sons and I've got a 13 year old boy an 11 year old boy and a five year old little girl. If like my last sentence to them would be that the goal in your life lies just beyond where you're afraid or unwilling to go. We have to step into that fear willingly and knowingly and be willing to accept the consequence of things that we believe in and are important to us to get the gold that waits on us. So what that looks like to me in career transition is find something you love to do. Find something that energizes you, that doesn't feel like work, that you would do 365 days of the year like it's a hobby. And then the hard part comes, go find a way to get paid to do that. That's mm -hmm. what I do as a college football analyst. It's what I do as a speaker in the off season. It's what I do in my life. I find things that I enjoy doing. And secondarily, I figure out ways to go get compensated for that. And the result of that is that I don't miss the mark. I don't have to wake up at 65, look back at my life and go, shit, I missed it. Because at 28 years old, I had all the money. I had a big fancy house. I had a big fancy car. I had a Super Bowl ring. And it was the darkest place in my life. And what I realized in that moment, fellas, is that it's not about stuff and things and acquiring. It's about who I am. It's about my relationships. It's how I impact the world. It's about my experiences and following your heart and doing the things you love is the only way that I found successfully to be able to do that. 
And thankfully, knock on wood, I've been lucky enough to be able to be compensated for that as well. Follow your heart, do something you love to do, and challenge yourself to step into fear to go figure out a way to monetize that. Wow. That sucked. Yeah, that sucked. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Joe, I'm glad you I'm glad you got to meet Aaron uh, a yeah, few weeks back. This is outstanding. Aaron, thank you so much. My Very pleasure. Hey, um, Right. Last question is, how do, people, how do people find you? Are you on LinkedIn? What's your Twitter handle? You know, well, I, I've been reluctantly coerced to start an Instagram, TikTok account, but primarily Twitter at, at Aaron Taylor, CFB, A-A-R-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R-C-F-B. And then on CBS Sports, covering the SEC, the Mountain West Conference, and you know the national landscape of collegiate sports. Uh, I also can be found on a Peloton from time to time, um, mountain biking with my kids. I'm a pretty damn good snowboarder as well. So you never know where I might pop up, Joe. But if you're looking for me out in the, the metasphere, those are the places to find me. <laughs> the metaverse, right. Yeah, that's going to be good to see you in the metaverse. Um, wow, that was fantastic. Thank you, Aaron, again, um, for some incredibly great stories and insights and thoughts. Uh, very very touching. Um, really appreciate it. Um, Joe, any final thoughts? No, it was great. I mean, I think that, that, you know, as you said time and again, Tom, that we're trying to make story core for sports and this story and, and the life experiences from someone who's been at the best and, and has, you know, literally been alongside some of the, the best and, and the most challenging times physically, mentally, and, and professionally is what we want everybody to, to learn about. So Aaron, thanks for joining us today on the call. Yeah, just one last one last thought related to that very issue, Joe, and to, per Aaron's comment about NIL, you know, we've spent a fair amount of time on this program and in our pro, uh, on, on this uh, podcast and in our program talking about NIL from a business standpoint. And NIL, it's about time. And yes, people have been compensated. There's been, from what I can tell, you, you know, you guys may know more, very little about the the other side of this. And it was really interesting to hear that today. Mm -hmm. And now that I think um, I've gotten this perspective from a guy like Aaron, I'm thinking of it differently already after the last 45 minutes. And mm -hmm. I hope that the leaders of our industry think about it a little bit differently and take <laughs> all this into account. I, I know that's a tall order, especially with the way college sports is run. Um, but it, it sounds like a really serious issue that needs to be addressed and I, I hope that what Aaron said, at least most of it comes to pass because it seems it, it seems like it's really critical. Yeah, it, it is. And in, in I think overwhelmingly NIL is a, a, a facet of sports that's an opportunity. It's a tool. And just like a sword, it can be used to bless or it can be used to cut. We, as an institution of intercollegiate athletics, need to make sure that we maximize the opportunities to bless and to change the fiscal picture uh, and create generational wealth in certain circumstances for these young men in their perpetuity as they go forward. And it's not so that they're rich in the short term, but so that they're wealthy in the long term and minimize the downsides and the seedy side of sports that the win at all costs has cost us in so many other areas. So I'm encouraged. You have guys like Nick Saban, who's, you know, the Oracle of college football. He's the best there's ever been. He's the best there'll ever be. He's recently been outspoken about the same things. And when he typically talks, others tend to listen. So it just 
really comes down to where we're going to fall on that. But these are important conversations for us to have. And I really appreciate you guys having me on so we can talk about some things that matter. That was cool, Joe. Like a little, a little postscript on the show, like a little bonus. Like it reminded me like old albums. Remember they used to end certain ones. And if you waited like 40 seconds, there'd be a little bit more music. They'd sneak that in every so often. And what people don't know is if you play this podcast backwards, you'll hear the Notre Dame fight song. Yeah. Just wait for here. Perfect. I love it. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Um, Aaron Taylor, really appreciate it. Everybody, please follow Aaron on Twitter, Aaron Taylor CFB. Uh, Check him out on TV. Um, Whether you're streaming or watching old fashioned traditional TV, he'll he'll be there next football season. And if you get a chance to see him or see one of his videos or however you distribute your stuff, Aaron, uh, I'm certainly going to recommend it to everybody I know. Um, you, have, you have a really inspirational story and a really inspirational message. So thank you again on behalf of Columbia. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Joe. And thank you, Sam. You haven't said a word, but you've been on here the whole Never time. Does. <laughs> out in front of everybody. Yeah, thanks, Sam, for producing. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate it. We'll see you on the next episode.